We're continuing our progress through the life and ministry of Jesus, and uh, we are now in the third or fourth, I can't remember which, third or fourth sermon that I'm preaching from the temptation of Christ. Very important. Uh, It's mentioned in all three of the synoptic gospels, and all three of them add something that we don't have in the others, so it's a very, it's a complementary picture. So, for example, Mark mentions that Jesus was with the wild animals. Neither Matthew nor Luke mention that, but he was with the wild animals. And I don't think that means that uh, he was among them and he was frightened and they were attacking him. I think it means that he was with the wild animals and it was a harmonious withness that he was with them and, and it was a, uh, a part of the experience that was sufficiently important that Mark records it. <clears throat> And I think it uh, may be an instance of his uh, experiencing harmony even with the wild beasts of the field. There's a passage of Scripture in the book of Job that says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even the beasts of the field to be at peace with him. And then there are a couple of things that Luke mentions that neither Matthew nor Mark mention. And I'll point out at least one of those things later in the sermon. So keep your Bible handy and uh, let's read the entire account. And uh, then focus in on the third and final of the uh, temptations that our Lord endured. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let me just pause and uh, explain with each of the temptations. This first temptation is a temptation to to, uh, perform a useful miracle. Actually would produce something that Jesus could use. Um, This also, this first temptation is uh, an appeal to Jesus' physical nature. You're hungry. Here's a way that you can supply your need. It was a temptation to not trust God. Uh, So the devil's insinuation is, here you are, you're hungry, you've come out here in obedience to the Lord, but it doesn't look like God's going to come to your aid. You've got these miraculous powers. You need to do something about it. And so this represents those temptations when when we are tempted to not trust God sufficiently. We're tempted to take matters into our own hands. Now let's look at this second temptation. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone." Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, let's think about this second temptation. In the first temptation, the devil says, you cannot trust God, uh, so you need to take matters into your own hands. And in the second temptation, he says, well, if God really loves you, then give him an opportunity to prove that he loves you. And the way that you can do that is by doing something that he has not commanded you to do, namely, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. And if God really loves you, then he will come to your rescue 
and everyone will see it, but God will, God will step in and rescue you from this. This is the temptation to put things into God's hands that ought not to be there. So the first temptation was to take things that are in God's hands and take them into our hands. The second temptation is to presumptuously put something into God's hands and say, if you love me, prove it. The devil's first temptation was to uh, Christ's physical nature, his hunger. The second temptation is to his spiritual nature. Prove, prove that God, give God an opportunity to prove that he really loves you. So the first, uh, the first temptation was to physical. Second temptation was to spiritual. The third temptation has to do with the combination of the physical and the spiritual in service to God. This third temptation is, well, the first one was taking things into our own hands. The second temptation is presumptuously putting things into God's hands. This third temptation is putting things into someone else's hands in the hope that they will be able to do something for us. So here it is, beginning in verse 9, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. I'm going to divide this text into two longer sections and then two very brief things at the end. So first of all, we'll see the temptation, and secondly, we'll see the Savior's rebuff of this temptation, and then very briefly, at the end, we'll see that the angels come and minister to him, and finally, what this story tells us about the worth of Jesus, the worth of Jesus. But first of all, let's uh, see what this temptation is, so let's look at the temptation. What was the, the temptation? And uh, so let's look at it. He said, uh, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. So the devil, verse 8, takes him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. So this almost certainly was a a supernatural vision. Uh, Taking him to a high mountain, I think, emphasized the the fact from a high mountain he could probably see a, a very long way and perhaps he could see some of the leading cities of that area. We don't know what mountain it was. But if he is going to show him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and as it says in the book of Luke, in a moment, he's going to show him all these things in a moment, then it was probably some kind of a supernatural vision that uh, Satan brings before the eyes of Jesus. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I would imagine that Jesus probably saw more than Satan saw. So Satan presents the vision, but uh, Jesus sees all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he sees them for what they really are. But before we get to that, let's just see them in the way that Satan wanted him to see them. And so I think that this might have been kingdoms and, uh, and, and cities, not just that were extant in the year that Jesus saw them, but that would be in in existence now. 
So, for example, he, have, he may have seen great centers of pleasure like Bourbon Street on New Orleans. He might have seen uh, all of the, the pleasures that are available in a city like Las Vegas. He may have seen all of those pleasures. Maybe he saw, uh, maybe he saw cities of great power at that time. He would have seen Rome. Maybe in the future he would have seen Moscow or maybe he would have seen Washington, D.C., He would have seen uh, centers of great intellectual activity. At that time, he might have seen what was going on in Athens. Uh, And and looking into the future, he might have seen what is going on in Cambridge or in Oxford or some, some center of great learning such as that. And so Jesus saw all... All of these things with all of their glory, all of the the pleasure and all of the riches and all of the power that was uh, available. And uh, I'm sure that Satan thought, wow, this is is really going to be a temptation to him. He sees all this good stuff. And, And throughout history, I have been, Satan thinks to himself, throughout history, I have been able to seduce people through these things. People have done crazy bad things and aligned themselves with me so that they might possess great riches or so that they might possess great power or so that they might have access to great pleasure. There are many people that I have already seduced with this. I certainly succeeded with the original pair, Adam and Eve, and throughout history I have continued to be able to seduce people with this. He saw all the kingdoms. He saw them in their glory He saw them in a moment. Now, in just a minute, we'll get to how did Jesus see them. But now let's just, let's give the temptation its full force. Now, these kingdoms were something that had already been promised to Jesus as the Messiah. Let's take a look at where this happens. We can see it in Psalm number 2. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm number 2. And uh, here we will see that all the kingdoms and the nations of the world have already been promised to the Messiah. And, of course, Jesus would have been aware of uh, Psalm number 2, probably could have sung it from beginning to end. And in Psalm number 2, which is a messianic psalm that tells about the Messiah, look at verses 7, 8, and 9. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, the Lord says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Notice that the condition that was given to the Messiah of how he would become the inheritor of the nations and of the ends of the earth, is the Lord says, ask of me. Or another way of saying it is, if you do it my way, then I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. But here it's summarized by, ask of me. And now Satan says, "Uh, I know that all this has been promised to you, but I've got a shortcut for you. I've got a shortcut for you. Remember how that I said earlier that temptation is an illegitimate shortcut to a goal that is usually legitimate, an illegitimate shortcut to a legitimate goal. Uh, So uh, 
satisfying your hunger is a legitimate goal. Doing it through misusing your miraculous power is an illegitimate shortcut. Uh, recognizing and enjoying the love of God is a legitimate goal. Trying to get God to prove it by throwing yourself off of a cliff is an illegitimate shortcut. For the Messiah, receiving the adulation of the world, receiving the service of the world is a legitimate goal. It's one that God has appointed. Getting it through entering into a pact with Satan is an illegitimate shortcut. Now, in the book of Luke, it says that the devil said, all these have been given to me. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world, and then he says, all these have been given to me, and I can give them to anyone that I want. And if you will bow down and worship me, then I will give them to you. Was Satan telling the truth? Well, remember that Satan is a liar and the father of lies, and so we're, we're certainly have a a right to be very skeptical as to whether or not he's telling the truth right there. But there must have been some modicum of truth to it, or he would not have had the audacity to speak it in the presence of the Lord Jesus, although it took a whole lot of cheek for him to say to Jesus, if you'll bow down and worship me, then all of this will be yours. And so I don't guess we should underestimate the amount of cheek and audacity that Satan is, uh, is prepared to, uh, to face Jesus with. Was he telling the truth? Jesus himself said on <clears throat> in John chapter 12, Now the prince of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. Now the prince of this world is driven out. So on a couple of occasions, uh, Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world. In the New, in the New Testament, G- uh, Satan is also called the prince of the power of the air. I think that we should grant him some of what he claims, but not all. So because of his successful rebellion that he introduced into the human race, the human race became uh, aligned with satanic principles. So the, the essence of the satanic rebellion is that we want to rule ourselves, and we don't want God to rule us. And so every child is born into the world with that predisposition. You might even say that it's, it's the essence of sinfulness, that we want to rule ourselves and determine for ourselves what is good and evil, and we don't want someone else, especially not God, telling us how to run our lives, telling us what is good and evil. And so since every human being that is born into the world through ordinary generation is born with that kind of alignment with the satanic program, then there is a sense in which Satan really is the god of this world. Not that he has the same kind of power that that God does and that he can arrange events in the same way that God does, but that most most of the people living on earth are in harmony with satanic principles. And so even though most of them would not be admitted Satan worshipers, Yet Jesus could say to a very religious group of people, you belong to your father the devil because you want to carry out your father's desires. Well, that made them very angry. We're not illegitimate children, they protested. We are children of Abraham. They were very religious people. But Jesus said, well, the way that you're acting shows that you are in fact in alignment with the family of Satan. And you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a liar from the beginning, not holding to the truth, because there is no truth in him. 
And uh, so there is a certain sense in which Satan could say, yeah, this world, I have conquered it. I, I conquered it uh, according to the rules of the game that were set down by your own father, Jesus. There was a, a, a period of probation that was put upon the first humans, that they had to continue to obey him in order to be confirmed in a state of righteousness. And playing according to your rules on your chessboard, I came in and I won the game. And so the kingdoms of this world uh, have been walking with me. The overwhelming majority of the people who have ever lived belong to me. But I have control over them sufficient that I can redirect their loyalties so that they will continue to come to me, but they'll come to me through you. So if you will just bow down and worship me, then uh, I'll arrange it. I will take care. I'll, you, I'll do everything in my power to make sure that all the kingdoms of the world with all of their glory are brought to you. And it's just, it's just so easy. I think of uh, those uh, times in football when someone has taken a quick snap at the end and they, the quarterback gets, gets the ball and then he just very quickly does that, down over. But that signifies something significant at the end of the game. Or when there has been a punt that rolls and rolls and rolls and the punting team is coming up close to the ball and they wait until it stop rolls and then somebody touches it. So quick, but it means now that play is over, now the other team is going to take over. And I, I conceive that this is what Satan has in mind. It'll be over in a moment. All you have to do is just touch the knee and play's over. And the new transaction is going to take place. But Jesus knew what that little touch of the knee meant. That little touch of the knee meant, now now I'm on Satan's side. So in this way, well, look how Satan says it. He says, if you will fall down and worship me. So that, that falling down is really an insightful comment to help us to understand what worship is. Worship commences with a falling down or with a bowing down, whether it's worshiping Satan or whether it's worshiping God. Just think about the the psychological implications of bowing down. I'm not going to do it now, but think of the way that uh, people in eastern countries uh, get down on their faces before their elders or uh, the way that you have seen Muslim men praying in the mosque, it's not just that they're down on their hands and knees, but they put their face down on the ground. Now, what is that saying? What is that physical posture saying? That physical posture is saying, I submit to you. Because that's a position in which you are entirely vulnerable. Uh, So when we bow down before the Lord, we are saying, I'm I'm not going to fight you. I am not going to fight you. I'm going to submit to you. And furthermore, if, if I'm not going to bow down before you, <coughs> if I think you're going to take a club and bash you in the back of my head, I'm going to run the other way. And so it also is a statement of, I trust you. So I'm not going to fight you. I submit to you. 
and I trust you, and then here's another thing, I'm going to cooperate with you. So since you're not going to bash my head in while I'm down here, I'm going to cooperate with you. So all of that is, whether you're bowing down to the Lord or whether you're bowing down to, the, to Satan, all of that is included in the idea. And I think it's the fundamental posture of worship. I'm not going to fight you. I'm going to submit to you. I trust you. And I'm going to cooperate with you. And so we don't want to bow down to Satan, but you do want to bow down to God. You want to bow down before him and say, I'm not going to fight you anymore. I submit to you, I trust you, and I'm going to cooperate with you. And Satan says, if you'll just bow down, then it'll all be okay. Uh, You won't have to go through all that messy business that was indicated uh, when you were baptized. So in baptizing, baptism signifies that there's some bad stuff ahead. I keep making this motion because I'm dunking someone under the water. Because dunking someone under the water indicates there's a death involved here. And when Jesus was baptized, he was associating himself with his people and with God's plan, which is symbolized by you've got to die and then come back to life again. But it's that dying part that is so unpleasant. And Satan says, I know that uh, in Psalm 2 it says that ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. But you know what's entailed in that asking, Jesus. You know what's entailed. You know what he has in mind. I mean, I've read Isaiah chapter 53 like you have too. About all that wounding and all those stripes and all of that. And that ain't going to be no fun for sure. And we can just bypass all of that. There is an easier way. There's a simpler way. You just join my team. I'll take care of it. Now, one more thing as we look at this temptation. We ask the question, does that have any relevance for us? I mean, we read in uh, stories about uh, Mephistopheles coming to people and um, making making deals with, you know, if if you will just... If you'll just uh, follow me, then I will give you all these things that you want. And so literature has several very famous stories, the Faust stories, about uh, people who made deals with Satan to get what they wanted. But probably nobody in here has had any experience like that as far as Satan himself showing up and trying to make a deal with you. I hope not. But probably everyone in this room has had the principle of this temptation presented to you. It is the temptation to get something that you want by aligning yourself with one of Satan's principles, like lying. So who in, a, who in here has not told a lie? And so very young, uh, we, we found ourselves facing a difficult situation, and we thought, I can get out of this if I lie. That's the principle of this temptation. You can bypass the hard stuff if you will lie. Or, what student has not faced the temptation of cheating? You know, we, I, I, 
when I was a youth pastor years ago, there was a girl who lived in my neighborhood, and and uh, she she came over one night, and, and she was just all upset and crying, and she had come from a warm climate and moved to Lexington, and she said, oh, it's it's so cold, I don't think that my bird is going to live, and I have a 20-page paper due tomorrow, and I haven't even started on it. And uh, I thought, well, I think I know why, the mostly why you're crying. It's not because it's cold and because you think your bird is going to die. It's because you've, you've delayed doing this 20-page paper. And, uh, and so the temptation, uh, there are temptations that, uh, that confront you in such a situation when, not, not in person, but Satan comes and says, you know, you, you can get papers off the Internet. I know you didn't do your algebra homework, but you, you, your friend is a really good algebra student. You can copy his algebra homework and turn it in. Teacher doesn't even look at that. You know, she just looks to see if you've done it, puts a check mark on it. You can cheat. That is this principle. Or there are principles that uh, when, when you're in business... You look around and everybody else seems to be doing well, but you know good and well that they're cheating and they're cooking the books and they're making deals under the table and so on, and you think, everybody else is doing it. I mean, I can, I can just kind of touch the knee here right quick. I can just kind of touch the football right quick, and it's going to make the play change. That is this temptation. It's the temptation to get something that God says, you can get my way if it's my will for you to have it. Ask of me. I'll give it to you. Work hard. Do your algebra homework. You'll learn algebra. You know, work hard. Okay, don't tell a lie. You're going to get in trouble. You're going to get a spanking this time, but learn a lesson from it and move on. That's the way God says, and Satan says, eh, there's an easier way. There's an easier way. And so that's a temptation that Jesus was confronted with. And, and then I've mentioned to you three or four little ways that it is confronted with us too. But the idea is, if I just adopt satanic principles for a little while, let's don't even call it that bad name. We're just going to do what everybody else does for a little while, and then we're going to step back on the straight and narrow you are succumbing to this temptation. Now let's turn our attention to how Jesus rebuffed this temptation. And uh, so Jesus says, Be gone, Satan! First time he's called him Satan in this exchange. Be gone, Satan! He just commands him. I like that. Keep your finger here and turn to Luke chapter 4. I want to show you something that I learned from uh, reading G. Campbell Morgan on this. I thought this was a brilliant insight. And uh, in Luke chapter 4, okay, so Jesus says to Satan, Be gone. I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to tell you what to do. Before this, he's kind of entered into conversation with him. Satan says this, and Jesus replies that, and Satan says this, and Jesus replies that. Let me show you something here in Luke chapter 4. Look at verse 1. Luke chapter 4 and verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, 
returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. So after he's baptized, Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, and he's led into the wilderness where he's tempted. And then up through verse 12, it talks about the temptations. And then look at verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Before the temptation, he's full of the Spirit. After the temptation, it says that he returned in the power of the Spirit. I think that the teaching here is that through the experience of repelling and rebuffing Satan, Jesus was made stronger and Jesus was made more powerful and he gained more authority over Satan than he had going in. He's full of the Spirit, but he has to be tested. He passes the tests, and after that, he comes out stronger. It's a little bit like the principle of lifting weights. The principle of lifting weights is that you lift weights to the point that it hurts your muscles some. It, it causes some cells to break down. Uh, you tear it down a little bit, but then after your workout, you eat, and your body takes that protein that you eat, and it starts to repair those cells that have been torn down, and when it, when it repairs them, makes them a little bit stronger. <clears throat> and that's how it is when we successfully resist temptation like Jesus did. You resist the temptation, you come back a little bit stronger. Now, it's interesting that throughout the rest of the encounters that we read in the Bible, the rest of the encounters that we read between Jesus and the evil spirits, it's all very short, <clears throat> all very terse. So, for example, when, uh, when Jesus uh, he delivers the Gadarene maniac, the man who was possessed by the legion of demons in Gadara, uh, as, he is doing that, the <clears throat> as he is doing that, there is a herd of pigs that is feeding nearby, And the demons say to Jesus, Why have you come to torment us before the time? Let us go into the pigs. Jesus says one word. Go. He has that kind of authority. He has that kind of authority now. He has gained this kind of authority over Satan. This is the Savior also who is our friend now. And who is our older brother. He equips us with authority over spirits also. But if we encounter a spirit that is too strong for us, all we have to do is look back and look up at our big brother and say, will you take care of this this troublesome spirit for me, please? And Jesus is full of the spirit of power, and he's able to just speak to those demons and say, go. And so that's what he does here. He says, be gone, Satan. And then he pulls out the sword of the Spirit again. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Well, I told you a few minutes ago that I would uh, say, what what did Jesus see when, when he saw all the kingdoms of the world? Well, for one thing, it's possible that he saw kingdoms with that S on the end, which you know means that it was plural. It wasn't all one kingdom. It was a lot of kingdoms. And you know what goes along with kingdoms? Conflict. 
Where there are kingdoms, there is competition to see who is going to be the greatest king. In the book of Revelation, we read how that uh, there's great rejoicing in heaven, and those rejoicing in heaven say this, the kingdom, not kingdoms, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ. There is a a unity among the people that Christ redeems so that we are no longer various kingdoms, but we are part of the kingdom. And one of the great misconceptions that is ripping up Christianity today is the insistence that black people form a certain uh, segment. They're a kingdom unto themselves. And white people are a kingdom unto themselves. And yellow people are a kingdom unto themselves. And, and so on. And that's all contrary to the teaching of the Scripture, which says, if we belong to Jesus, we're all one kingdom. And not supposed to make a big deal out of the things that divide us, but to make a big deal out of the things that unite us. The things that divide us are just fine to celebrate, but just don't let it make, a, don't let it make a, an item of division. So I think one of the things that Jesus saw is that he saw kingdoms, and his goal was kingdom. And then, of course, with all of these kingdoms, in addition to the strife, then there's all the misery and there's all the heartache, and, and Satan just wants to gloss over all that. See the pleasure, see the riches, see the power that is here. And, uh, and Jesus sees beneath all of that, and he sees all of, the, all of the misery and the agony and the suffering and the dying that goes on and on. And he just says to himself, I want something much greater and much nobler than what is being offered me here. And I am going to stick with the plan Notice how that Jesus connects <clears throat> worship and service. Satan had left that out. Satan had said, if you will bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of this. Jesus recognizes from the Scripture, service goes along with worship. And, of course, that's the way it is with, with whomsoever you do truly worship. There is service. There is that admission. I'm going to go along. I'm going to cooperate with you. I am your servant now. <clears throat> Many of you have uh, seen the movie of the Count of Monte Cristo. And uh, the book is ten times better. But why does anybody even need to say that? Uh, the book is ten times better. But it will take you about twenty times longer to read the book than it will to watch the movie. <clears throat> it's about twelve hundred pages. But uh, in the movie, if you've only seen that, there is this scene where uh, the Count of Monte Cristo... Uh, Edmond Dantes, uh, gets into a fight with someone. It's supposed to be a fight to the death, but he doesn't kill him, and he spares his life. <clears throat> and after that, this man whose life he spared comes up to Edmond Dantes and says, I am your man. I can't remember if he bows down on the sand. Maybe so. I know in Robinson Crusoe, after Robinson Crusoe uh, spares Friday's life, then Friday comes and bows down on the beach and puts Robinson Crusoe's foot on his head. They didn't speak the same language, but 
as far as words were concerned, but as far as actions were concerned, Friday was saying, I am your man. From now on, I am your man. Because service does go along with worship, and those whom you truly worship, you also are willing to serve. And that's true whether it's the devil, that's true whether it is the Lord. Now, you know, if, if Jesus had bowed down, it would have entailed a compromise of his integrity on another way that maybe you hadn't thought of. When you bow down before someone, you are saying, you are greater than I. And in order for Jesus to have done that, he would have had to have convinced himself of a lie because he knew good and well that Satan was not greater than he. And so it would have been just pretend. So Jesus rebuffs Satan with this verse of Scripture, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. It's interesting that all three of these verses of Scripture that Jesus uses to repel Satan are from the book of Deuteronomy. And some of you theology students know that the book of Deuteronomy is one of the books that is most assiduously attacked by, the, by uh, literary critics of the Bible. They, they really attack the book of Deuteronomy. And which just proves that Satan has an ongoing grudge against the book of Deuteronomy. He's been beaten over the head with the flat side of the sword by the book of Deuteronomy, and he really does not like the book of Deuteronomy. But Jesus does. He quotes three times from the book of Deuteronomy. What a wonderful thing it is to have the Word of God so thoroughly in your heart that when Satan confronts you with this evil suggestion, you have a verse of Scripture that is ready, and you say, yeah, but the Bible says this. And in order for Jesus to have that kind of familiarity with the Word of God, he had to spend a whole lot of time not playing video games when his buddies were, so to speak. You know, there were, I, I heard sometime that someone said concerning a man who was thoroughly acquainted with the Bible, they said, I would give my life to know the Bible like that man. And a very wise person responded, he did. He gave his life to know the Bible like that man. And so, search the Scriptures. Ask God to open your eyes so that you will be able to remember them. Make effort to remember them so that the Word of God is stored up in your heart. Uh, in, in matters of uh, whether or not you should carry a gun for self-defense, one of the primary rules is uh, if, you, if you get yourself into a dicey situation, make sure that you have a gun. Now, however you think about that, the spiritual application that I'm making for it is when you get yourself into spiritually dicey situations, make sure that you have the sword like Jesus did, the sword of the Spirit. And so we've seen the temptation. We've seen how it's similar to temptations that we face. We see how Jesus rebuffed Satan and uh, how he used the Word of God and the ideas that uh, helped him to see the big picture of things and not just the, the glimmer and the shine of the, the kingdoms of the earth and their glory. And he came out of this full of the Holy Spirit, full of the power, in the power of the Spirit. And God, with God's blessing, we too can. And then I said very, very briefly that we would just see at the end that the angels came and ministered to him. 
Before this, uh, Jesus had refused to secure the help of the angels. He had to go through it without their help because he is representing humans. And so as a human, he had to represent this without cheating, without getting the angels to come and help him. But after he has successfully done it, then the angels come and they minister to him. And then the final thing that I want you to see is the worth of Jesus. The worth of Jesus. One of the questions that plagues thoughtful people is this. Okay, let's lay it down as a fundamental that God is going to punish sinners in hell forever. And that's a horrible thought. Hell forever. You never get out. So let's lay that down as a fundamental principle. And then let's lay this down as a second fundamental principle. The Bible teaches that if you receive Jesus as your Savior, you will get out of hell forever. You'll never have to go there. And so here's the question. I would have been suffering in hell for uncounted millions of years. Who can begin to possibly conceive the agony and the pain that is entailed in that, the hopelessness? And you're telling me that one man in a few hours on the cross can get me out of that? And the way he can get me out of that is because he suffers for my sins in my place? Now, that's just mind-boggling. How could it possibly be? Well, I think that this verse of Scripture gives us some insight into that. Here are all the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory. And Satan says, I will give up all of this for you. You see, Satan properly valued who Jesus was and what his worth was. You are worth more than all of this. Jesus, in another place, said, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And so by Jesus' teaching, we may conclude that your soul is worth more than all the glory of all the kingdoms of the world. And I dare say there is not one person in this room who has properly valued your soul, your own soul, and how valuable it is. Because look at, this, look at the silly things that you're willing to trade your soul for. I, I don't want to become a Christian because, well, I, I like to dress in such a way that Christians shouldn't dress. I want to dress that way. Or, you know, Christians, uh, most Christians don't do this thing that I enjoy doing, and if I become a Christian, I'll have to give that up. Really? You're going to give up your everlasting soul that is worth more than all the money and all the banks and all the world so that you can dress sleazy? So that you can enjoy bar hopping? You're going to give up your soul so that you can make a little more money through cheating? 
What is it that you are giving up your soul for? Well, as valuable as your soul is, it is not as valuable as the soul of Jesus. And when Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for sinners, you may be sure that it was enough to satisfy God. But the question that I put to you today, is it enough to satisfy you? Will you today bow down in your heart before Jesus and say, Lord, save my soul. I've been making a mess of it, but today I've seen that I need to give it to you. Save my soul. I submit to you. I'm going to quit fighting you. I submit to you. I'm going to cooperate with you from now on. I am your man. Jim Bob, come and lead us in a concluding song, please.